Father in heaven, great to be here with the whole crew from DA with DA. Lord, we place our lives into your kind and capable and caring and compassionate hands. And Father, that's just where we need our lives to be. We are imperfect. We are faulty. We have made mistakes. We have sinned. We have fallen short of your glory. And Father, now as we turn our attention to one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture, the New Testament, Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, I pray, Father, that this would not just be an ancient encounter that we're learning about and reading about, but Father, that this would be a very uh, real, personal experience for us and that we would make the, rather that the Spirit would make the appropriate applications to our life is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so glad everyone is here. We're in chapter 57 today. One thing you lack, and I'm gonna read Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. Okay, here we go. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, him being Jesus, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? A very forward question, right? A very straightforward question. Verse 17, and he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, the story actually continues on through the rest of Matthew chapter 19, but, but Ellen White doesn't exactly deal with that, that following material in this chapter. But for me, the real punchline in this story goes into the interaction that Jesus has with his disciples as the rich young ruler retreats, you know, into the distance, walking away from Jesus. And, and unfortunately, we're not going to spend really any time on that. Not that it's not important. I've preached sermons on it. I think it's hugely important, but we're going to kind of stick to how the desire of ages covers this. And um, I want to read you now the Matthew 10 section, Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Also quite short. I think I said Matthew, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Now, as he was going on the road, one came running, whoa, and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Verse 20, and he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth up. And then this is the best part of the Markin account. Okay, this is the best part. Verse 21, then Jesus looking at him, loved him. I love that, right? The, the Matthew account and the Luke account don't include that. Now it's obviously there by implication. Jesus loves everyone, but I just love the fact that in Mark's account, he notes that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
I, I just love that there. He looked at him and he loved him. And there is some there are some gems, and then there's gems within gems in today's chapter. And I, I cannot wait to share this together. This is gonna be great stuff. So one of the tricky parts, and I'll just say this by way of introduction, one of the tricky parts about any time we come to a passage of scripture or to a story of scripture that we know, or at least that we think we know, one of the dangers is that our familiarity will actually rob us of fresh insight. Remember what we read yesterday, how, in fact, it's actually occurred in the last two days. When the disciples went back after the resurrection of Jesus, disciples went back after the resurrection of Jesus and read through scripture. She says that it was like a new revelation to them. It was like a new book because they were seeing in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and the Psalms, they were seeing that Jesus, in fact, had been all throughout the Old Testament, but they, under the influence of Second Temple Judaism, rabbinical teaching, had actually misread their own book, their own scripture, their own narratives. And so when they went back and saw them through the lens of, of Christocentricity, which means Christ-centered, because Jesus had said, search the scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, and that's all about me. They went back and they reread it, and it was to them a new revelation. It was like a new book. A whole new book, right? And you, you get a sense of that excitement when you read the Gospel of Matthew because he just, he keeps falling over himself saying, fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. He just says it over and over again. And you get the sense that you're almost having the kind of experience of discovery that Matthew himself would have had after the ascension of Jesus going back and learning, whoa, Whoa, Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. He's in the Psalms, he's in the prophets, he's in the minor prophets, he's in Moses, he's everywhere. Well, one of the dangers that we can fall into is a danger very similar to that which the the Jewish leaders and and some of the, the, the rank and file Jews of Jesus' day fell into, and that was assuming that we know what's being taught. Right, And that familiarity, particularly if you've been raised in a Christian context or in a Christian home, you could be like, oh yeah, I know this. Yeah, I've, I've heard this before. I know this story. And so we have to challenge ourselves to come to Scripture as a new book, as a new revelation. And when we read these stories, because we're changing, the person that I am today is not the person that I was yesterday, is not the person that I was last week or last year. So Two things are gonna happen. The Spirit's gonna give us new revelations and we're gonna be a new person. And so the consequence of that is that we can come to old stories and actually read them as if we're reading them for the first time. And that happened to me when I read through this chapter today, chapter 57, One Thing You Lack. I was like, whoa, I love that. And sometimes, especially when it's a story that I've preached on many times, I'm familiar with, sometimes the whole thing hinges on a single word a single verb tense, a single phrase, and I'm like, whoa, that is an insight that I'd never had before. In fact, just this morning, I was thinking about what the next challenge will be, and uh, I've, I've, I've got some good ideas. I've got what I think are some really good ideas, but I'll be sure to bounce them off of you in the days to come. But as I said, today's day 60. I mean, we're in the sixes now, and that means that we're two-thirds of the way done. Two-thirds. In fact, just yesterday in the mail, I received... Two boxes, brand new boxes of the Conflict Beautiful, which means I now have all four of the ones that we're going to give away in the drawing at the end of this in my possession. 
right? Two sanctuary colors, two grayscales, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I still haven't figured out how I'm going to get everybody's email, and but anyway, I'll, I'll figure all that. I got time to figure that out. So even if you haven't followed along with all the lives, if you or if anyone you know has read The Desire of Ages in these 90 days and they submit their name, they will be eligible to win, right? And so anyway, we've got other big plans coming up. I'm pretty excited about it. In fact, right now I'm just recording on my iPhone and I'm recording on my wife's new iPad, but uh, I'm actually going to be ordering some brand new very nice equipment, new camera and uh, new microphone and some lighting so that we can sort of up our game a little bit. And um, so, yeah, it's all coming together. This is just the beginning. This DA with DA. I'm, I'm really excited about what the future holds. Okay. Speaking of being excited, let's get into this chapter. One thing you lack, and we've already read the Matthew 19 version and we've read the Mark 10 version. So we're going to pick it up here. I'm going to go through many of these paragraphs because there's so much goodness here. But I'm going to start by just noticing, as I did there when I was reading, mentioning that this is quite a forward question. Good teacher, what do I have to do that I may inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler is a businessman, right? He's entrepreneurial. In his mind, he sees the, the ebb and flow of economics. There are some people that are just wired this way. I have friends that I've literally have two friends of mine that are so successful in business that they have said to me, both of them on separate occasions, they don't even know one another very well, they've met, I think, but just on separate occasions, they've said to me each, um, yeah, I sometimes start companies by accident, right? Because their minds are so business-minded, they just see needs and they see how to meet those needs and they see the economic you know, flow, and they will just get an idea, they'll make a few phone calls, and before they know it, they've started a business. Two people have said this to me. I have never started a business ever, and I've certainly never started a business accidentally. I mean, to me, that would be akin to like building a car accidentally. I mean, that's just not the kind of, right, building a car, how do you do that? But people who are business-minded, entrepreneurially-minded, their minds work in such a way, I guess by way of analog with me, you know, I will sometimes write a sermon by accident. Like I'll just, I'll say something, I'll hear something, and before you know it, I've got a whole sermon and it's been written in like five minutes, just in my mind, bam, there it is, right? Other sermons take years and years or months and months, I should say, to sort of get ready and to prepare um, in terms of their development. But other times it's just like, there it is, there it is. <laughs> Christian is saying he thinks he's going to receive one of the series. Okay, I hope you do, Christian. I hope you win. Um, but anyway, the point that I'm making here is, is that Jesus knows the person that he's dealing with, and this person, business-minded person, is very transactional, very economic in his relationship to Jesus. He goes right up. Jesus has something that he wants, and being a person of economics, being a person of influence, in a position, he knows that this is how, it's negotiation. This is how it works, right? Now, you have something I want, and I believe I have something you want, and so now we just have to agree upon a price. And so he approaches in a very transactional way. Hey, good teacher, this is a, you know, it's a polite greeting, it's a courteous greeting. It certainly isn't, you know, <clears throat> you know, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. It's not that. It's a respectful, polite, courteous greeting a man of position, 
a man of economics is approaching another man of influence, not a man of economics, Jesus, of course, or of influence, or certainly a man of influence. He's a different kind of person. And value sees value. He recognizes, hey, you've got something I want. I think I have something you want. So maybe we can have a meeting of the minds here, have a transaction, right? So he says, very forwardly, what do I have to do so that I can get what I think you might have access to, right? Either you might have an insight, you might have some teaching wisdom. I don't believe that the rich young ruler here is asking like, you are Yahweh, you are sovereign God, and you can bestow upon me the gift of righteousness by faith. That's not what's happening here. It would be very easy to read that retrospectively into the text, but what he's asking is, is hey, look, you're a rabbi, you're a man of influence, you're, you're studious, what do you think, what do you say, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And again, he thinks this is gonna be fairly transactional, fairly straightforward. He deals with people all the time. He's a man of consequence and he knows how to handle himself in situations like this. What he's about ready to discover is he's coming up against not just a man of influence or a provocative, dusty, you know, controversial rabbi. What he's coming up against is God in the flesh, and he is, you know, to say it mildly, fully unprepared for this interaction. And so I want to get to that second paragraph there because I, I love the way that Ellen White, she's so masterful in this chapter. And I'm going to show you some of those examples of her literary mastery. But in this first paragraph, she very cleverly communicates through a series of phrases that the young man was sincere that he was enthusiastic, that he was desirous to be in the presence of Jesus and to try and arrive at some meeting of the minds, okay? So let's just read that. The young man who asked this question was a ruler, right? Rich, Richard, the rich young ruler. Um, he had great possessions and occupied a position of responsibility. He saw, okay, this is the rich young ruler. He saw the love that Christ manifested toward the children that were brought to him. He saw how tenderly, I really appreciated that because that was Jamie's word yesterday, remember, in the chapter, blessing the children, his word was tender. So I like this. She loves this word and she uses it here again in relation to how Jesus related to the children. How tenderly he received them and took them up in his arms. Now watch this. Now speaking of the rich young ruler, listen to these series of phrases. His heart kindled with love, one, for the Savior. Two, he felt a desire to be his disciple. Three, he was so deeply moved that as Christ was going on his way, four, he ran after him, five, kneeling at his feet. And as we've noted again and again, being at the feet of Jesus is the right place to be. That's the highest place you can be in the universe. Asking with sincerity and earnestness, six, the question so important to his soul and to the soul of every human being, good teacher, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Okay, so with it, at least six phrases here, it's being communicated that there is at least a level of sincerity and enthusiasm on the part of the rich young ruler in approaching this exciting, popular, provocative rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And... Jesus, of course, and this is one of the coolest things in this chapter, Jesus recognizes the enthusiasm and it thrills his soul, right? When, when we respond to Jesus, when, when we put Jesus in the place that he belongs in our hearts and in our lives, Jesus, this brings joy to him because he knows, not in some selfish or conceited way, but he knows that for human beings to achieve maximal happiness, we have to 
love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbor as ourselves. So, so Jesus feels a joy, a happiness when he sees the way that the rich young ruler is enthusiastically, energetically, sincerely approaching him. And she does a great job of communicating that. And then he approaches with this rather straightforward, as we've said, transactional inquiry. Hey, what must I do that I can inherit eternal life, right? What's your perspective on this? Now, he's unprepared and we should not be unprepared because Jesus again and again and again, as we've been seeing, he will interact with people often not in the declarative, but in the interrogative, right? He takes the posture of asking questions so that the people themselves will come to the realization themselves, right? And we've seen this again and again. We just saw it in our last few chapters. How do you read? What does the law say? Which one is the neighbor, right? We've seen this is his modus operandi, going all the way back to Eden. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? What is this that you have done? I mean, God is asking questions, inquiring so that the human being will take responsibility upon him or herself and start asking, or excuse me, answering questions and then saying, oh yeah, oh oh yeah, oh yeah. Coming to these realizations ourselves rather than God just telling us. And I love this because among other things, it communicates that God values our agency. God values our agency intellectual agency and autonomy, and he wants us with our own brains, with our own thinking, with our own rational processes to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Jesus loves that. And so so the rich young ruler approaches Jesus. Jesus' heart thrills with enthusiasm because of the rich young ruler's enthusiasm. And he asks a probing question, right? And the question is, why, on what basis do you call me good? Why? Because this was kind of a courteous, it was a nicety, a good teacher, right? It was a, there was a little, it was a little too formal. And so Jesus probes about the whyness of this. He inquires as to the motive. Why? What, why are you, do, well, anytime a why question is asked when it comes to motive, that requires what? Introspection. It requires introspection. By the way, I received a lovely text from my dear friend Daryl, who's helped me set up this YouTube account, uh, YouTube page this morning. And he said that, that these last couple chapters have been hard for him. And uh, I'm not gonna tell any of his life story because I've not asked for his permission, but I can only say he has had an experience in life that none of us would want to have, none of us. Tragic, terrible, difficult, trying, And he wrote me this morning and said, this chapter, these last couple chapters have been particularly trying for him and he's had to really search his heart. So so introspection is the order of the day when reading this chapter. We should be careful that we don't commit the same mistake that the rich young ruler does or nearly does when he thinks he's gonna approach Jesus casually. Hey, a little bit of enthusiasm, a little bit of energy to carry the conversation, maybe even a little bit of flattery. Hey, good teacher. No, 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 this isn't gonna be that. This chapter is not gonna be that. At the end of this chapter, there's gonna be some sober and serious reflection, right? And we don't wanna make the same mistake that the rich young ruler did and think we're just gonna have a casual acquaintance with Jesus. Jesus is gonna ask us the why question. Why? He's gonna put it right to us because he's the great physician. He's the great diagnostician. He's gonna diagnose us or better yet, invite us through our own answers to his probing questions to diagnose ourselves, okay? 
So why? Why are you doing that? Why are you thinking that way? Why are you, why? Why? And the why question causes us to go internally and say, yeah, why, why am I saying that? Why, why am I doing that? Why? Why do you call me good? Said Christ, no one is good, but one that is God. And there is a little play here because he's basically saying, if only one is good and that's God and you're calling me good, then you're calling me God. But of course, the rich young ruler wasn't calling him God. He was, you know, in a flattering and courteous way, just trying to win himself as, as businessmen often do. Right? As, as deal makers often do, you, you sort of win yourself into the affections and favor of the other person. So, so Jesus immediately, as he did with Nicodemus, you must be born again. Right? As he did to the woman at the well. You've had five husbands and the guy you're with now is not your husband. Jesus, he, he cuts through the CRAP. Forgive me for saying it, but that's what he does. He cuts through that and he just gets right to the, to the heart of what's going on in individuals. He just cuts through it. Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good and that's God. So if you're calling me good, are you saying I'm God? Right, that's, that's what's implied here. And we should be mindful that we cannot come to God with this sort of non-introspective you know, energy that we think is just gonna carry the day. Jesus is gonna put those probing questions to us and he does, he does. Now, I like this next line here. Jesus desired to test the ruler's sincerity and to draw from him the way in which he regarded him as good. And, and I know that some people find this a little tricky, a little disturbing, what God's testing him. Okay, these tests are eminently reasonable. Okay, think of, some of them are a little trickier, but when you're dealing with the infinite and eternal and omnipotent God, these tests are reasonable. For example, when Jesus says to Philip, hey, where are we gonna get bread to feed these people? Right, John 6. Where are we going to get bread to feed these people? Like, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. That's a test. That's a test. But, I mean, given the fact that you've seen Jesus do the things that you've seen Jesus do, I don't know, like walk on water, instantaneously heal demoniacs, right? Take away blindness, raise the dead. I think a little bread and fish, he's got this, right? So, so yes, it was a test. When Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman, yeah, but it's, it's not good to give the, the children's food to the dogs. There was a little test there. She passed that test with flying colors, by the way. She's like, look, yeah, but even the little dogs get to eat the food that falls from the table. So, so God is not averse to allowing the vicissitudes of life, the trials of life, to test our faith and our sincerity because the test that we receive relative to the capacity that God grants to us is infinitely reasonable and passable. Think of the Garden of Eden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a kind of test. It wasn't an unreasonable test. I mean, Lord have mercy. There were hundreds, perhaps thousands of other fruit-bearing trees in the garden. And so if you can eat of every tree freely and there's only one that you can't, come on, this is a passable test. So you're gonna to have to remember again and again and again in your Christian experience to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Translation, that you may be able to pass the test. And so, yes, this is a test, not in the sense that God is trying to get people out, but he's trying to give them an opportunity to strengthen their own faith. Right, like I love working out. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love exercising, I love rock climbing, I love rowing, I love cycling, I love running. 
And if I don't test my muscles, if I don't push my body, I'm never going to achieve the physical potential that is available to me, right? And so too with our faith. Our faith does need to be tried. It needs to be tested. It needs to be placed in circumstances where we're not super comfortable, right? And just as with the building of muscle, when the muscle breaks down, it builds back stronger. And so when we get those little tests and we pass them, it enables us to deal with the larger ups and downs of life. And so this is not an unreasonable test, but I know that some people will be uncomfortable with the idea that God tries us or challenges us or tests us at all. This is an eminently reasonable test. Jesus desired to test the ruler's sincerity and to draw from him the way in which he regarded him as good. Did he realize that the one to whom he was speaking was the son of God? What was the true sentiment of his heart? Introspection. Friends, if you're not in the mood for some serious introspection, you should just go offline right now because this chapter is gonna go to a really close place. Right, and, and it's gonna go to a place where we're not just gonna be able to have this casual, you know, sort of shallow interaction with Jesus today. We're gonna to go deep today. Or I should say the Holy Spirit's gonna go deep today, I believe. At least he went deep with me in this chapter. And I think the same for you. Um, unsurprisingly, the first sentence of the next paragraph says, the ruler had a high estimate of his own righteousness. Yeah, that's very much in keeping with the Judaism of his day, Right? God, I'm so glad I'm not like those people, the Samaritans, the lepers, the tax collectors, the centurions, right? And I'll leave it to you and the Holy Spirit to ascertain, to diagnose whether or not you find yourself at times thinking of yourself and evaluating yourself as just a little better, a little smarter, a little more rational, a cut above those around you. I find myself doing that. I do. I find myself maybe not ontologically better, like I'm superior to them in some ontological sense or so. No, but there are times where I just think, man, this situation is easily fixed. If I was in this situation, I could fix that. that I, could, I could fix that, right? I wouldn't have done that. I can't believe they said that. How could they think that, right? These are all subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways of propping ourselves, our own intelligence, our own wisdom, our own spirituality, aka our own righteousness, as just a cut above those around us. And uh, that requires, that needs to be expelled from us. We need to become aware that everybody is uniquely positioned uh, before God, that God sees us all in our unique situations and that comparing ourselves among ourselves, as Paul says, is just not wise. It's just not wise. To compare ourselves among ourselves is not wise, but even worse is to compare yourself as, to think of yourself as better than, right? We don't want to fall into the trap that the disciples fell into and think that we're a cut above. Which one of us is the greatest? And so, yeah, he has this, you know, sort of first century isolationist perspective where we're a little better, we're peculiar, we're different, we do the right things, those people all do the wrong things. Um, so then there's the question about, well, well, Jesus says, well, you just need to keep the commandments, right? Do this and you will live. We just talked about that a couple days ago. And then there's a real strategy here when the rich young ruler says, well, which ones, which commands in Torah should I keep? Because, of course, there are a great number of commands in Torah, but the 600 plus 
Specific commands are reducible to the 10, which are reducible to the two, which is reducible to the one. And Jesus here does something absolutely masterful. He quotes from the commandments, but he quotes them in a very strategic order. So I'm in verse 18, Luke 9, uh, excuse me, Matthew 19, 18. You shall not murder, that is six. You shall not commit adultery, seven. You shall not steal, eight. You shall not bear false witness, nine. Now, if you knew based on that sequence that there was going to be one more commandment quoted, what would you guess it would be, right? This is, this is a no-brainer. Jesus has just quoted six, seven, eight, nine. Every single person is going to guess, oh, well, 10 is gonna come next. Covetousness, right? The 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's good, your neighbor's stuff. It's, it's basically a command against greed and materialism, right? What does Jesus do? He goes to five. Don't miss that. In fact, make a note somewhere because this is, this is purposeful, it's strategic, and it's, it demonstrates to the rich young ruler, I'm not just dealing with a good teacher. I'm dealing with someone who knows the innermost secrets of my soul. Six, seven, eight, nine, five. The rich young ruler, being a Jewish person, would have been very familiar with Torah and very familiar as every Jew was, um, every pious Jew, with the Ten Commandments. I mean, come on. Little children in Sabbath school know the Ten Commandments. So he goes, six, seven, eight, nine, five? Five? Where's 10? He doesn't say 10. He doesn't say a word about it. He purposefully leaves off 10 so that old rich will go, why didn't he say 10, right? He somehow manages to swallow hard in the midst of this new revelation that this rabbi knows his innermost soul, knows his struggle, knows the one spot on his soul, which was greed. It was money. It was possessions. That was his idol. And so he swallows hard and says, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've been doing all this. But he now knows that Jesus is on to him in a way that every one of us has had this experience. Every one of us has had, in fact, I had it just this morning, where, where you read something, you hear something, you observe something, and the Spirit of God speaks to you and says, this is for you. This line right here, this word right here, this sentence right here, this thing that you're seeing right here, this is for you. And, you're, and you become immediately keenly aware by the tailor-made impression of the Holy Spirit, this is for me. This is for me right now. And you know it. And you know that you know it. Now, I've had that experience where I've quickly just been like, oh yeah, 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 I've got stuff to do today, I'm busy. And you can hide that, you can tuck that away. But friends, I'm telling you, every one of us has had the experience where we know God has, has broken through the noise, he's broken through the distractions and he has got our attention and he's put his finger right on the pulse of our heart and we know there's a God in heaven and we know that he knows and he knows that we know. And that is a moment for repentance. 
That is a moment to cast your feet at the feet of Jesus, cast yourself, excuse me, at the feet of Jesus and cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not the time to start negotiating in transactional, you know, form with, you know, some sort of transactional posture with God. Well, well, if I, then you, and if you, then I, no. No, this is a, this is a moment where all the fish, when all the fish came into Peter's boat, he knew this was supernatural. He knew this was for him because he loved fishing and he loved the boat and he loved the water and he loved that lifestyle. And Jesus says to him, you see all of this? You see all of this? Follow me, leave it behind. And, and Peter knew this is for me. And so he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, depart from me, Lord, you don't want me. I'm a sinful man. That's the posture. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I knew you were sinful, but, but follow me, we'll work on that. We're gonna get to that, it's incredible. Okay, you with me on this? So, so, so five, six, seven, eight, or excuse me, six, seven, eight, nine, five. The rich young ruler knows, he's on to him. Now, what happens next is really cool, and it's the paragraph that begins, Christ looked into the face. Christ looked into the face of the young man as if reading his life and searching his character. And, the, and Richard would have known this. He would have felt this keenly. Now we get into the Mark account here, the Mark 10. He loved him. And Ellen White quotes it twice, right? The Matthew account doesn't say that part. It implies it. So too with the Luke account. But Mark, he loved him. He loved him. And friends, I want you to know today, in case you didn't already know, Jesus loves you. When he looks at you with all of your flat sides, with all of your follies, with all of your failures, with all of your flattery and your posturing, when Jesus looks you in the eye and knows you intimately and perfectly and exhaustively, he loves you. You are fully known and fully loved. And friends, that's it right there. That is the great treasure at the end of the rainbow in life, to be fully known and fully loved. He loved him. Now, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, ten times Ellen White is going to fall over herself to say the same thing here so many times. And here's what she's gonna say. She's gonna use slightly different language, but very often she's going to use the word longed longed, which is, which is a way of saying he desired, he yearned, okay? Watch this. He hungered. 10 times she's gonna say this. He hungered. This is Jesus. He hungered to give him that peace and grace and joy which would materially change his character. Okay, we just gotta pray, take a pause there. Friends, I want you to notice the order there. I just wrote in the margin of my... Uh, version here, order. In fact, let me just show you. I'll hide this so you can't see. Okay. You can't see my, where am I at here? Oh, right here. I just wrote the word order. Order. Notice the order and note it carefully. Jesus hungered to give him peace, to give him. It's a gift. I want to give you peace. Yeah. I want to give you grace. It's a gift. And I wanna give you joy. By the way, joy is where this whole chapter is gonna end, which is weird because the rich young ruler goes away sad as a purposeful tension there. He goes away sad, but the chapter ends on joy. So, so don't miss this, don't miss this. He hungered to give the rich young ruler, what did he wanna give him? Peace, grace, 
and joy, all as gifts, and then watch what happens as a consequence of that. Are you ready for this? What happens as a consequence of receiving the peace, the grace, and the joy from Jesus? It would materially change his character. Oh, friends. This is game-changing stuff. This is life-changing stuff. Because too often we think, if I can just change my character, if I can just become a better version, then I will be given peace and grace and joy. And it's the exact reverse of that. Jesus instantaneously, freely, when we're in our imperfect state, when we're in our fallen state, when we're in our flattering state, our transactional state, right? Think of the prodigal son. He comes back and he's, the young son is trying to negotiate. I'll, I'll become like one of the hired rulers. I can live. And he's like, are you kidding? Here's some sandals for your feet. Here's a ring for your finger. Here's a robe for your body. Instantaneously reinstates him. We receive peace, we receive grace, we receive joy, and it is the receiving of those gifts that changes the character, not the other way around. Note the order and note it well. So then he says, look, all you have to do, man, you're really good at this. You've been keeping all these things from your youth up. You only lack one thing. You just have to follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Well, that invitation in the words of the martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is the invitation, come and die. That's the invitation, right? Because if if you're taking up your cross, you're taking up your cross to go to a public place of humiliation and death, right? So when Jesus says, again, we've already noted this, when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's not inviting them to be literally crucified by the Romans. What he's saying is, live a life of self-denial for a life of self-denial and service for others to supremely love God and to impartially love man. That's a high price. I mean, let's not pretend that it's not a high price. In fact, two times in this chapter, she's going to say that the rich young ruler, who again was a man of, of economics, who was a man who understood a good bargain, a good value, two times she says he weighed, he weighed the invitation. He's weighing it. Hmm. Hmm. That is a lot. That is a lot to give up. So he's weighing it. That Jesus knows that the invitation to take up your cross and follow him is not an, it's not an easy invitation, but it's an honest invitation. And uh, again, watch where this is gonna go. It's gonna end with joy, but we're not there yet. Next paragraph. Christ was drawn. That's number two. He was drawn to this young man. He knew him to be sincere in his assertion. All these things I have kept from my youth. The Redeemer longed, three, to create in him that discernment which would enable him to see the necessity of heart devotion and Christian goodness. He longed to see him in a humble and contrite, uh, to see in him a humble and contrite heart, conscious of the supreme love to God, uh, to be the supreme love to be given to God and hiding its lack in the perfection of Christ. That's the best line in the whole book. We're going to circle back in the whole chapter. We're going to circle back to it. But I just want you to see the rest of these. Jump down to the bottom of the next paragraph. It says, Jesus longed to see him a co-worker with him. He longed to make him like himself. I'm turning the page. He longed to develop a little bit lower on that same page. Jesus was yearning two more times with what earnest, anxious longing, with what soul hunger. Okay, so 10 times, 10 times, I mean, Ellen White is, it's almost excessive, honestly. 
it's, it's almost a little excessive. I mean, it just popped out to me on the first reading, and sometimes you don't see those until you go through a second or third time. It was like, how many times is she going to say longing here? He longed, he yearned, he longed, he longed, he longed, he hungered. And then as if that's not enough, she adds the adjectives with earnest and anxious longing. Okay, friends, why is Ellen White taking great literary pains here to, to say this over and over and over again? She wants you to get some little window into the heart of God that longs over individuals that respond to his love, that respond to him. That's how he feels about you. He's longing over you. He's yearning over you. He's hungering over you. And the coolest thing here is that it's because he sees what can be. He sees the potential. This is the second thing I want to really note here. Not only the longing, yearning, hungering of Jesus, which he says again and again and again and again, but look at that next paragraph there. We're going to circle back in just a bit to that top line. But Jesus saw in this ruler... That's how the paragraph begins. Jesus saw, I'm on page 611 of Types and Symbols, 519 of the original. Jesus saw in this ruler just the help that Jesus needed if the young man would become a co-laborer with him. Wow. We've already talked about this. Remember yesterday when the little children were brought to Jesus? He saw in them future men and women of faith and of strength and even of martyrdom. He saw. What did Jesus see in the woman at the well? He saw an evangelist. What did Jesus see in Peter, James, and John at the Sea of Galilee? He saw powerful preachers of the gospel. Sure, that was years away, and there were going to be some bumps along the road, but he saw it. Jesus sees in this rich young ruler, she says, a perfect fit in his cadre of disciples. He's like, man, I got the, you're perfect Man, I've got, I know exactly where, where I can fit you in. Jesus saw it. Jesus sees that in you. This is, by the way, the faith of Jesus. The faith, in fact, she even goes so far. Let me just read this to you. I'm gonna get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay, listen to this. Again and again and again, she uses this language that Jesus saw in him something that could be grown that could be developed, that could be curated. She saw the potential, or he saw the potential. So listen to this language here. Uh, just, it's, all, <clears throat> it's all in these like next three paragraphs. So rather than trying to get you to the exact spot, just go look for them and I'll, I'll just go through them quickly. The Redeemer longed to create in him that discernment that would enable Remember when Jesus gave the invitation to the disciples? He says, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. That's in the Mark account. I will make you to become. It requires growth. It requires development. It's a process. But God sees the potential in that process. And he sees the product at the end of that process. Ooh, I like that. God not only sees the process, he sees the potential and he sees the product. He sees what can be. And that's the faith of Jesus. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. So listen to this. The Redeemer longed to create in him, one, 
the discernment which would enable him to, I mean, the next paragraph, the man would become three, a co-laborer of God. He would be a power for good. I'm still in that same paragraph. He could have represented Christ. The Savior would enable him to become, I'm up to seven now, I'm turning the page. He longed to develop, eight, the excellence of his character and to sanctify right? Which is a process by which things become holy. Nine to the master's use. If the ruler had then given himself to Christ, he would have grown in the atmosphere of his presence. What am I at? 10 now? Jumping down to a couple paragraphs later. He had the privilege of becoming a son of God. A couple paragraphs later there still. Um, Where he would perfect a Christian character. Okay, all of this is saying that what Jesus wanted to do was The same thing he wants to do with you and I. What Jesus wanted to do with Richard is what Jesus wants to do with you and I. He wants to give us his gift of peace and of grace and of joy. He gives us those gifts and then he puts us in a process where we have to trust him that he sees potential in us that we may not be able to see for ourselves. He sees the end product. He sees what we can be. My phone thought that I was saying, uh, hey, that name that you say when you're saying something to your iPhone. But anyway, friends, I want you to feel this. God saw in Richard something that Richard couldn't even see for himself. And here's what's gonna end up happening. What's gonna be weighed here is competing versions of Richard's future. Okay, Richard has a vision for his future, opportunities, investments, influence, position. He's, he's He's living a good life. And no one would have denied it. He had a good life. Jesus doesn't say that he doesn't have a good life, right? Like he's, he is well positioned to have a great life. So, so what's gonna be weighed here is the rich young ruler's version of his future and Jesus' version of his future. Now, this is where things get phenomenal. The rich young ruler thinks that the thing that Jesus is asking him to do will actually counteract his potential. It will counteract the joy that he could experience if he kind of saw it his own way. So what Jesus wants, excuse me, what the rich young ruler wants is what a lot of people want. They want their own way, but they want just enough of Jesus sprinkled in there to give them the sense that, you know, yeah, Jesus and I were tight. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Yeah, I like Jesus. But they want to keep this. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, that's not the thing. This is the thing. This is the thing. Yeah, to take up the cross and follow me, Live your whole life for me. I can't be second on the list. You shall have no other gods before me. I can't be third. I can't be fourth. I can't be fifth. I gotta be one. But trust me on this. If I'm one, if I'm one, your future will be better and brighter and the potential I see in you and the end product of what you will become is immeasurably better than this. This thing? This thing? This is why Jesus says things like, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his soul. You don't know what's in store for you. This isn't just, Jesus isn't just giving the invitation of responsibility and of duty. Well, you really ought to. You know, you ought to, I'm God. You really ought to do because I'm God and I made you and I'm owed your highest allegiance. Yeah, all of that's true, but that's actually not what God holds out to us primarily. The thing that God holds out to us is he's like, you know what? I got joy for you. I got happiness for you. I've got, I've got a life of such deep satisfaction and adventure and I got, I got great things in store for you. And check this out, check this out. Jesus says, not just in this life, right? Whoever will forsake all of it will get not only a hundredfold in this life, 
Wait till you see what I got in the hereafter. Right? So, so God's posture when he's making these seemingly hard invitations, like sell all that you have and follow me. I said, like, whoa, ooh. And so the rich, the rich young ruler is weighing it. But if we could see, if we could see the life, the potential that God sees in us, the life that God, if we could see the product that God has in store for us, it would be comparing nothing to everything. It would be no comparison, right? And so I just love that, that, that over and again, like 12 or 13 times, she's like, he wanted to create, he wanted to grow, he wanted to develop, he wanted to sanctify. It's a process. It's a process. Remember again, the order that we receive his grace and his peace and his joy, and then this materially changes our character. Now I gotta show you the very coolest thing in the whole chapter. The very coolest thing in the whole chapter, go back to the paragraph that begins, Christ was drawn to this young man. Okay, go back to that. Man, this chapter was overflowing. This chapter to me felt a little bit like the Levi Matthew chapter where it was just layer on layer. I mean, that's, I think up to this point, that might be my favorite chapter, Levi Matthew. This one thing you lack is right in that same tier, but it's just shorter. It's Levi Matthew chapter is so long and it just gets better and better and better and better. And at the end of that, I was like, how can I sleep? I can't sleep. This chapter has a lot of that same, but it's shorter. But look at this, look at this. Okay, I, you gotta go through this with me slowly because there's a high chance you missed this. And I don't say that you know out of any sense. That you, maybe you got it, maybe you got it. Maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. But Ellen White does this incredibly subtle thing. And I wanna see if anybody else got it. I wanna see if anybody else got it. You ready? It's incredible. Okay, paragraph begins. Christ was drawn to this young man. We've covered that. He knew him to be sincere in his assertion. All these things I have kept from my youth. The Redeemer longed to create in him that discernment which would enable him to see the necessity of heart devotion and Christian goodness. Now get ready for this next sentence, the last sentence in this paragraph. It's gonna blow your mind. If, if you didn't get it, you're gonna get it now, and it's just, remember, she's talking about how Jesus longed to see the realization, the actualization of what the rich young ruler could become. Watch this. Jesus longed to see in him a humble and contrite heart, as opposed to the one that was had a high estimate of his own righteousness, just described a moment ago, conscious of the supreme love to be given to God. Okay, now just pause right there. Jesus, and I know I'm setting this up, but I'm going through it so slowly because the punchline is so good. The savor of the punchline will be better if you really walk through this sentence. So Jesus sees in the rich young ruler, he longs, he hungers, he desires, he yearns to see the realization, the actualization of what the rich young ruler can become. And he, he sees that humble heart. He sees that, right? He longs to see in him a humble and contrite heart. He longs to see the rich young ruler conscious of supreme love to be given to God. Now, I'm gonna raise my hand right now and say, I am aware intellectually and experientially that supreme love is owed to God, my creator. And I'm also aware as a corollary of that, that the way that I show supreme love to God is by loving my fellow man 
and, and woman, by loving humanity, impartially. Okay, so everybody else out there, yeah, yeah, hands raised, yeah, you know that. You know that. You, I, you know that. If you're doing DA with DA, you know that what's, what's required of us, what's desired of us, even better, what's desired of us is supreme love for God. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you can, I mean, yeah, there we go, hands up, right? Like we know this, right? Raise your hands, you know this. Yep, I know that. Yep, I know that. I mean, this is not the first time you've heard this, okay? Yep, I, I know that, supreme love for God. Yep, 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 yep. I see all the hands going up on the, on the Instagram uh, feed. Okay, now watch the last bit of this sentence. Here we go. I know I've set it up. I probably spent too much time, but watch this. I gotta read the whole sentence. He longed to see in him a humble and contrite heart, conscious of the supreme love to be given to God and hiding its lack in the perfection of Christ. Notice how she uses the word lack there. The whole chapter is titled, One Thing You Lack. I, I, all these things I have kept from my youth up. Yeah, but you only lack one thing. And then Jesus said, Ellen White says that Jesus longed to see the humble heart, longed to see the contrite heart, longed to see him say supreme love for the God, but supreme love for God is the thing that's required of us and desired of us. But God knows that we will fall short of that. And so what happens when we fall short of supreme love for God and impartial love for mankind? We hide our lack in the perfection of Christ. Friends, on the journey, on the journey of growing, becoming, being sanctified, uh, uh, being enabled, being created, on that journey, when we, yes, fall short of the thing that we're supposed to be doing, supreme love for God, authentic and impartial love for mankind, when we fall short, what do we do? What do we do? Do we fail? Do we fall? Are we lost? No. We take our lack, which Jesus sees already. He sees our lack. He's, he knows that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And we take that lack and we hide it in the perfection of Christ. Friends, just the other day I said, and, and this is the perfect place for this. Believer, yes, you are imperfect. But more importantly, you are imperfect. That's what she says. That's exactly what she says, that while we're on that journey, while we're learning to love God supremely, while we're learning to love our fellow man and woman, uh, mankind um, impartially and genuinely, while we're on that journey and we fall short and we have a lack, we hide that lack in the perfect, what does she say? In the perfection of Christ. So yes, you are imperfect. But if you're a believer, you are imperfect. Friends, I want you to feel that. And by the way, this has got Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 written all over it. You might want to write that down. Colossians 3, 3. Colossians 3, 3. Paul says this. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When she uses the language of hiding our imperfections in the perfection of Christ, that is Moses being hidden in the rock. See, Moses was hidden in the rock and his, his, he was covered with the hand of God and, and, and the, the, the rock symbolizes Christ. So, so Paul is picking up on Moses when Paul says, 
For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's, that's, he's picking up on Moses being hid in the cleft of the rock. And Ellen White here is picking up on Paul who's picking up on Moses and saying, when we come to Jesus and we begin that journey of discipleship, follow me. Again, with Peter, with James, with John, with Richard, with David, with all of you, God sees the potential, he sees the process, and he sees the product. But while we're in the process of achieving and maximizing our potential in Christ, we're imperfect. We're falling short. What do we do with our lack? What do we do with our failures? What do we do with our sin? Our life is hidden with Christ in God. How does she say it? We hide our lack in the perfection of Christ. Friends, I don't know what to say. I'm just overwhelmed with, and this is, by the way, this is just the message I needed this morning. Like the spirit of God spoke to me and said, David, you're on this journey. Jesus longs, he yearns, he sees, he longs, he hopes. She even says he hopes. It's incredible. Jesus gave me this message this morning and I'm, I, I, it got the double star treatment. Let me show you this. The double star treatment right there. Right there. Hiding its lack in the perfection of Christ. Imperfect, right, is greater than imperfect. There's more that we could say about this chapter, but I'm just going to say a couple more quick things. Um, So... I'm just turning the page here and just a couple quick observations and then we'll get to the rubric. Quick, quick, quick observations. Um, She says, uh, she uses a very strategically the word if several times in this chapter. So at the end of that paragraph that we were just reading there, um, the one that begins, Jesus saw in this ruler. Jesus saw in this ruler. He saw. Listen to the last sentence of that. If he had made this choice, if Richard had made this choice, how different would have been his future? Friends, that's the thing. It's our version of our future versus Jesus' version of our future. And there is no comparison. It's nothing as compared to something, right? This is peace, joy, happiness, salvation, love. And that's just in the here and now. I mean, Lord Jesus have mercy. What does the hereafter look like? I don't know. But no one's gonna be disappointed in the new heaven and the new earth. No one's gonna get there and be like, man, I thought this would be way better. No, no. Him who made your heart to desire is the one best qualified to meet the desires of your heart. He knows how to make you perfectly happy, perfectly blissful, perfectly content, perfectly satisfied, perfectly in love, perfectly loved, perfectly known. He knows how to do that. So this, this doesn't even, what are we talking about? We're we're talking about nothing as compared to something. And so she says, if, if he had made this choice, how different would his future have been? He needed the love of God in his soul. Um, that he might receive the love of God, his supreme love of self must be surrendered. You've got to make room. You've got to make room. And that's all Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, look, you're not going to arrive at perfection in a moment. He's saying, just make some room. Make some room for me. Make some room. Put the supreme love for me first and impartial love for mankind second. And you're not going to do it perfectly and you're going to have to learn and I'm going to grow you in this, but make room for me because if you make room for me, I'll make room for myself. Right, the spirit will take over. You make room for me and I'll make room. You let me in that door. I stand at the door and knock. You open that door, I'll come in, it's gonna be fine. You gotta let me in though. You gotta let me in. 
And here, here we're waiting. We're weighing. We're like, mm, let's think about this. The creator, the infinite, eternal, omnipotent creator God is holding out to me the promise of not only a great life in the here and now, a life free of shame and guilt and regret and of love and joy and peace and fellowship. He's holding that out to me and eternal life in the hereafter. But, but I got this other thing. I got this other thing. Friends, what do you got? You got lust? I mean, come on, really? What, what, do, you, what do you got? You got, you got an economic uh, dishonesty, an economic, come on, what, it doesn't matter. I mean, you, we can make an idol of anything. And Jesus speaks to us right in that inner chamber of our heart and says, that thing or those things are occupying the throne that belong to me. Um, I already noted uh, twice she uses the word weighed. She says, as the young man weighed the question, and then a couple paragraphs later, she says, thousands are passing through this ordeal, weighing Christ against the world. Weighing Christ against the world. Friends, it's something versus nothing. Okay, no, no. Turn your life over to Jesus 100%. By the way, I'm not just telling you, I'm telling myself. That's the way forward. That's the way to happiness. That is the way to become the best version of myself, the best father, the best husband, the best Christian, the best pastor, the best human being I can become. Um, she makes this really great point about how the, the rich young ruler, that his love for riches would become all-absorbing, and I just wrote the word leaven there, because she actually says this incredible line here. She says that riches were his idol. This is the paragraph that begins, his claim that he had kept the law of God was a deception. He showed that riches were his idol, so he had actually broken the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And then a little bit later in that paragraph, listen to this, this is incredible. He refused the offer of eternal life and went away and ever after the world was to receive his worship. Whoa. That's heavy. The world receives our worship. Something's gonna get our worship. Something's gonna get our worship. And the best thing to worship is the creator, the, the one true God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of scripture. That's the thing that deserves our worship. Furthermore, it's the only thing that can actually reward our worship. It's the only thing that can actually orient our worship toward the rewards of happiness and joy and guilt-free living that he intended us to experience. So if we worship anything else, that, that, those things are idols. They can't deliver. I mean, really, what are we talking about here, right? And so the rich young ruler, and she says this um, twice, I noted this. She says, his words were words of wisdom, though they appeared severe and exacting. They appeared severe and exacting. And then again, the cost of eternal life seemed too great. And I made a note between those, appeared and seemed. It wasn't actually exacting because what Jesus is offering is better. It's very, I don't know if you're familiar with Pascal's wager, but it's very much like Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager is basically saying, if I stand, he was a mathematician. I preached a sermon on this years and years ago called Pascal's wager. If I stand to gain something of potentially, right? Because there, there is the potential there and in Jesus, it's not just a potential, it's a promise. But let's just give ourselves a 50-50 shot. Let's say I stand the chance to gain, some, gain something of infinite value. Well, any, any mention of infinite is gonna be you know, naturally um, 
attractive to a mathematician. And so Pascal said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that I have a shot at getting something of infinite value and all I have to do is wager that which is finite? He says, you make that bargain every time. You would surrender something finite, even if it's only a chance at getting that which is infinite. Do you know what? In Christ, it's not just a chance. It's not like an outside shot. Oh, you might sneak in. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee because he gives his love and he gives his grace and he gives his peace and he gives his joy. So you're trading something finite with the guarantee of getting something infinite. And so she says it appeared to be severe and exacting and the cost of eternal life seemed to be too great. But if you could just, you know, pull back the curtain to see the world that that Jesus is describing and the promises that Jesus is making, there is no comparison. It's something to nothing. It's something to nothing. In fact, in fact, it's more than that. It's everything to nothing. It's everything to nothing. Because what does the psalmist say about the, the, the unrepentant dead? He says they die, their emotion is gone, their plans are gone, and the memory of them is gone. They're gone. God didn't make us to die. He made us to live. And whatever you gained, whatever you acquired, whatever you accomplished in this life, if it doesn't include and prioritize the gaining of eternal life offered by Jesus, then it was all for nothing. It was all for nothing. All those experiences, all of those memories, all of those acquisitions, they're gone. 10,000 years from now, we won't remember who owned more property, who had a better 401k, who invested in Bitcoin earlier. Not that there's anything wrong necessarily with these things, but come on. We're comparing the weighing here. You put this in the scales, it's like, Nothing and everything. And so it seemed and it appeared. Um, she says that the invitation is uh, the invitation to a life of service. This is what the invitation to take up your cross and follow me is. It's a life of service, a life of ministry to others, supreme love for God and authentic love for mankind. And then she ends the whole chapter on joy, which is so cool. I'll just read you here the last little bit. When Christ, this is the last paragraph. When Christ followers give back to the Lord his own, when we give back what has already been given to us, they are accumulating treasure, which I love, by the way, I love the fact that Jesus says, follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. He speaks the language of economics to an economically minded person, just like he spoke the language of fishing to fishermen, or he spoke the language of water to the woman at the well in Sychar. He speaks the language of the people, or he spoke the language of authority to the Roman centurion. Go, go, your servant is healed. Jesus speaks the language of the people and he speaks the language of investment. He's like, I got, a, I got an investment opportunity you're not gonna wanna miss. This is better than Bitcoin. This is better than early opting in on Amazon or Apple. I got something good for you here. You wanna know what I got? I got eternal life. And you can have it, it's guaranteed, there's no risk. It's like insider trading. Jesus lets you know the outcome in advance because he says, oh yeah, uh, Jesus has already died and rose from the, the grave. So he's conquered sin, Satan, and death. So it's a guarantee. It's like insider trading. And he's like, oh yeah, it's guaranteed. When Christ followers give back to the Lord his own, they are accumulating treasure which will be given to them when they will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, quoting Matthew 25 and Hebrews 12, the joy of seeing souls redeemed eternally, redeemed, eternally saved, 
is the reward of all those that put their feet in the footprints of him who said, follow me. Joy. The chapter ends in such an unexpected place in joy because the rich young ruler walked away sorrowfully. He walked away dejectedly. He walked away sad. Right now, we can only hope and pray that at some point in his future, he reconsidered the offer of Jesus because happily for us, Jesus doesn't make the offer only one time, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, right? Like God holds out the invitation today and then today and then today and then today. The problem is, is that if we don't heed the invitation today, as I've already said, we have no guarantee that the moral choices and dilemmas that that we understand today and discern today that we'll be able to recognize tomorrow. We might be the kind, the person we might be tomorrow might not be able to comprehend the moral choices that face us today. So today is the day of salvation. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And the end of that road, that circuitous road, sometimes trials, sometimes ups, sometimes downs, the end of that road is joy, eternal joy. So anyway, I just thought this chapter was incredible. And we didn't even get into, Ellen White doesn't even deal with verses 23 to 30, which to me is the punchline of the whole thing, where Peter starts saying, hey, we've left all and followed you. What do we get? And Jesus, Peter, excuse me, goes right into this same transactional modus operandi, right into transactionalism. And then that's when Jesus gives that incredible promise. Assuredly, I say to you in the reg- regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you're gonna ha- you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and you get eternal life. What are we talking about here? This is an investment that cannot be refused. Wow, I love it. Absolutely love it. And, and anyway, what was your word? I want to see what your word was. I'm pretty sure I'll be amazed if somebody had my word. A, a, a lot of times the word is really obvious. Like the other day we had the word light. And yesterday I think people had maybe the word mothers. Like sometimes it's obvious. But for me, I'll be interested to see. Okay, surrender, Andre says, great word. Yeah, that really captures it. Self-surrender, great word. Heart, that was my word yesterday. Excellent. Oh, perfection. I actually like that word. Um, what do we got here? Entrusted, but now it's imperfection. I like it. Pull, ooh, good. Joy, longed, humanity, longing, soul hunger, investment. Oh, very good, Sherry. Very good, Christian, treasure. I like that. Oh, Michelle has the same word, treasure. Longing or joy, joy. Oh, yield. Oh, that's cool. Daryl says struggle. My, I got one of my guys trying to call me. Let's see, longing, Vital, Robert Rafferty says called, good, gain. Oh, I like that. Why don't you stay there, phone? Why aren't you staying there? Um, okay, there we go. Um, perfect, perfect introspection, reward, cover, great words. Oh, if, Sandy drops if, yeah, if is good. I mentioned that she uses the word if strategically several times, including that one that I read. If he had made this choice, how different would have been his future? Sylvia says transaction, yeah, lacking. Ooh, lack is good. I almost chose lack because the one thing you lack, but I try, hide, Iris, Iris, yes, yes, that's my word. God bless you. I didn't think anybody would say it. There's my word, hide. My word is hide. 
And, and it, I think there's so many cool layers here to it. Let me make my case. So the reason I went with hide was, first of all, the rich young ruler tr- tries to hide the actual condition of his heart with the sort of niceties and the courtesies and the flattery. Um, he, he, he's actually trying to, he's, he doesn't want Jesus to have full access to what's going on. But when Jesus quotes commandment six, seven, eight, nine, five, he can't, he has nowhere to hide Right, So that's number one on that level. Number two, you could say that when he walks away dejectedly and sorrowfully, in a way, he's hiding from Jesus. And you can imagine that if he never changed his mind or changed his, his uh, response to Jesus' invitation, if Jesus ever came into a city or a town or a village where he was after this, he would not have gone out to meet him. He would have hid. But my favorite part about Hyde is the line that I quoted Jesus longed to see in the rich young ruler a humble and contrite heart, conscious of the supreme love to be given to God and hiding its lack in the perfection of God. Friends, we need to hide. In fact, look what I wrote right here. I wrote so I wouldn't forget this. I just wrote it right here. I'll I'll read you what I wrote. The rich young ruler lacked one thing, supreme love for God. This would be manifest, manifested in using his considerable resources to bless and benefit those who were less fortunate than he. His love and obedience would not be perfect. It would not be without fault. It would grow. It would increase. It would develop. He could hide his lack of supreme love for God in the perfection of Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So my word was hide. Hiding in him, hiding our in hiding our imperfection in his perfection. I love it. Okay, very quickly here, let's do the rubric, the point, the person, the prayer and the practice. Here we go. What was the point of this chapter? For me, the point of this chapter was that there is no price too high to be a follower of Jesus even though it may appear or seem to be so. No price too high. Whatever that cost is, if it is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, famously wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Okay, fine. Fine, because if I have to trade in something finite, this is very Pascalian, if I have to trade in something finite in order to gain something infinite, you make that transaction every day. You make that investment every day. That's better than Tesla. That's better than Bitcoin. That's better than Amazon. You make that investment every day. So that's the point. Number two, what do we learn about the person? Ah, for me, how many times did she say Jesus longs, he longs, he yearns, he desires, he hungers. Jesus longs, yearns, desires, and hungers for you and me. He is drawn to us and he loves us. Remember Mark 10? Jesus looking at him, loved him. He loved him. How do we pray this chapter? Father, help me to give you my everything and then... Please hide my lack in Christ's perfection. Father, help me to give you everything. My everything is really nothing. So help me to give you my nothing. In, in response, you give me your everything. And if I fail to give you my nothing, I'm just using that as a, as a phrase for my everything. If I lack, if I fail, if I fall short, if I, then hide my imperfection in the perfection of Christ as you have promised to do. And then finally, practice. I thought this was an important takeaway here. I wrote self-evaluation. Well, let me even modify that. Spirit-guided, biblically informed self-evaluation is essential 
Are we what we think we are? Because the rich young ruler thought he was something, so he approaches Jesus on the basis of what he thinks he is, and clearly he was not prepared for the introspection that Jesus was offering when he took the finger of the Spirit and put it right on the specific idolatry and weakness of the rich young ruler's heart. And we need to do that. We have to do that. We have to make ourselves available in those moments of introspection, those moments of like Jesus, as the psalmist said, try me and test me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Paul said, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith or not. And so spirit-filled, biblically informed self-evaluation and reflection is an essential discipline that the Christian must practice so that at every stage, we're not resting on our laurels and being like, oh yeah, yeah, I got this. Yeah, I got, I got, I've been here, done that. I got this. Now we need to keep coming to scripture, coming to these stories, coming to Jesus as, as if they're new, every day new, every day fresh, a lesson to learn. And when we do that, Jesus holds out to us the prospect of the life and future that you carve out for yourself or the life and future that I'm offering. And friends, this is trading nothing for everything. You make that investment every day of the week. And so Jesus says to you and Jesus says to me, follow me, follow me, and I'll give you treasures in heaven. I'm accepting that invitation and I hope you are too. Father in heaven, we respond to the gracious, longing, yearning invitation of Jesus. And we say yes. We say yes. And Father, even our yes contains within it imperfection and maybe some residual selfishness. But Father, we pray that as we respond in yes, as like the feeble man, we reach out our hand to touch the living, powerful hand of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would Make up for our lack. Make up for our imperfection. Hide our imperfections in the perfection of Christ. Father, we are imperfect and we know it. But Father, put us in perfect. Put us in Christ. We respond right now. We say yes. We say yes. Now you do what you do, Father. You grow us. You sanctify us. You enable us. You develop us. Father, you see in us what sometimes we can't even see in ourselves. And we're trusting you to draw that out of us in this process called life. And we look forward, Father, and we claim the promise to spending eternity with you and with all of those that have accepted this incredible offer of salvation made available to us by Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.